0: At Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy, and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsome
1: And I'm Charlotte Bond.
0: Traditional stories of mermaids describe the creatures as beautiful maidens who sing sweetly as they lounge on rocks and comb their long, flowing hair. But like sirens, mermaids lure sailors to their death with their beauty and song. The less popular of the merfolk, mermen, were not blessed with the beauty of their feminine counterparts, but they were just as dangerous, calling forth stormy seas whenever one of their kind was hurt. These ancient creatures appear in stories across cultures and times, from Beowulf to the Little Mermaid. Mermaids remain popular in fantasy stories. But what do representations of these creatures in our fiction say about our society, and in particular, the way society views and treats women? For this discussion, we are joined by Beth Cartwright, whose debut novel Feathertide features a few merfolk. So Beth, would you like to introduce yourself
2: to our listeners? My name is Beth Cartwright, and Feather Tide is my debut novel. It's a coming of age fairy tale set in the city of Murmurs, which is a place of sky worshippers, mermaids, mist, and magic.
0: So, we thought you would be a very good person to talk to mermaids about mermaids with. Merfolk and other water spirits have been a part of many cultures' folk stories. What are some of your favourites, and what have you seen a lot of?
2: I don't know whether it's it's the idea of of the mermaid generally that was fascinating to me. The idea that it's like um, a haunting, tragic figure that seems to seek vengeance, and it's it's the impossibility of them, but just maybe they exist. So there's not like one specific story, but it, it's the concept of them as a whole, and they were around in ancient. Greece, I and mean, I think that's probably where they they first took a hold in literature and mythology, wasn't it? Alexander the Great's sister, when she learned that he died, she flung herself into the sea and thought she she'd commit suicide, but actually she was turned into a mermaid, and then she she would torment sailors every time they they sailed in the Aegean Sea. I think the idea's been around for such a long time. And then obviously Disney made their version, which I haven't actually seen, which is very different from the the Hans Christian Andersen one, which is far more evil and brutal and and cruel.
1: I just wanted to dive in. And if you don't mind talking about your book for just a, a moment, I thought that it was really interesting that you had two characters. And I hope this isn't too much spoilers for anybody, but you have Elva, who is part mermaid, and Mariah, who is part bird. So. They have very different personalities. And I wondered, how did you go about crafting their different personalities? Were you at all influenced by how people viewed the sea and the sky or birds and fish throughout the centuries when you were thinking about these characters? Or did they just come together in your head? Or did you just pluck them out of thin air? <laughs> how, how did you go about crafting them in their very particular ways?
2: I don't think it was that conscious. Like, they're kind of opposites. One is is of the air and one is of the water. So they're both very elemental. But but what draws them together is the difference, because although they are kind of opposites, it's their difference that unites them, if that kind of makes sense. Um, They both belong to a different place. It's not of the earth. And yet neither of them are where they should be. But I was quite interested that you had Elva as being...
1: Quite distant, quite aloof and sort of more traditional, what you might think of the the more negative aspects of mermaids. And you have Mariah as being very human and very emotional and just a wonderful character that you really root for. And I wondered why you chose sort of to make her as the bird character and... Elva with all of her kind of cool aloofness as part of the sea. To me, it just, it reminds me of ancient mythologies where you've got the sea, which is just unknowable and vast and quite cruel and birds, which are kind of cute and fluffy. <laughs> but I don't know if that was in your mind at all or or not.
2: Maria doesn't really know who she is and the, the relationship between them, it, it's a strange one because she's so desperate to find out who she is and where she belongs and her place in the world. And she does it through Elva. So it's not a true love story. And some people have said that they're not rooting for that. And good, because it's through her that it's through her relationship with Elva that she understands herself and she learns self-love because she's completely clueless. She's doesn't know anything about the world she doesn't know anything about interaction she doesn't know anything about relationships but the difference probably where she gets her warmth and her humanity and her sensitivity is because she's been nurtured and the role of the mother in the beginning is so important to her and I think it's important to everybody you know to get that that nurturing childhood and without it it can affect your for the rest of your life. Yeah, she she is grounded because although she is part bird, she wasn't raised that way. She was raised shut away, really, almost like a cage. But in that space, she learnt love. She was was loved. She was accepted, but she wasn't really accepted for who she wanted to be. It was who they wanted her to be. But she had a lot of attention there from, from 30 women. So she had 30 mothers And I think that that can shape who you grow to be. Absolutely.
1: And it is a a theme throughout just how much she is loved. And even when she travels to a new country, she finds people who instantly fall in love with her, not in a, you know, in a true love kind of way, but just who love her for who she is. Um, And I think she encourages that in people because of her beginning and it's so interesting because a couple of weeks ago we were talking about heroes who don't come from loving families and how they always seem to be kicked out and to be the the one who goes off and and does all this fantastic stuff is you know usually the one who leaves home because they feel forced to whereas you're quite right um your main character does go, but she's leaving a happy place behind her and she creates happier places where she's going, which is so refreshing to read in a character and particularly in a coming-of-age story where it's all so mixed up and messed up and you're trying to find yourself. I found that really comforting in a good way.
2: Thank you.
0: I wanted to pick up on what you were saying about the sort of the difference between the sky and the water, flying and swimming, basically. Interesting that you, you didn't really consciously pick those two for any other reason because sirens and mermaids have often been confused or linked and mermaids and sirens have very similar aspects to them. So sirens sing and lure men to their deaths off the sea and they're beautiful and so on and and where sirens are half woman half bird mermaids half woman half fish so i thought that was a really really interesting kind of connection with your book and also i i just love the fact that sirens you know these beautiful creatures who lured men to their deaths off you know off the sides of the sea they supposedly could die by drowning whereas they're often then linked to mermaids who live in the sea. I just think that's a, it's a really interesting
2: idea to have those those two linked. Well people think don't they that sirens are mermaids but like you said they're they're actually half half bird half woman. But I think the word siren in different languages translates to mermaid, doesn't it? So there is a confusion there but yeah it's there is that connection with the, the idea of the temptress I suppose the alluring dangerous Creature that you know you have to be you have to be wary of beauty. Maybe picking up on
3: this idea of women as somehow kind of deceitful. Especially when we talk about kind of female monsters or female mythical creatures, they very often have this 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 deceitful luring nature. So many folk tales paint women as mysterious and alluring and hostile. But what do they tell us about the way that women are conceptualised as mythologized entities in male communities?
2: It's the same today, isn't it? The way the media presents a certain image, a certain look, and then people believe that's what they have to, to look like. and it's, it's a really dangerous thing to present opinion as fact, but it happens all the time, increasingly so. But yeah, it started right in the very beginning with the ancient Greek myths and the siren song luring the sailors to their deaths. But I don't know, that the the mermaid in particular is, I think it's kind of a, a really tragic figure and they tend to suffer loss and heartbreak and then they want vengeance for that and they want other people to feel that pain. So I think they're morally ambiguous. I think they're as unpredictable as the sea itself, which is probably a perfect domain for them. That is a perfect
3: metaphor, isn't
2: it? Yeah, we we associate them with misfortune, temptation, and even death. But ultimately, the control is with Poseidon, isn't it? Who's the Greek god of the sea, and he has the ultimate power.
1: It was interesting you were talking about control there, because that's what I was thinking about this when I was thinking about how mermaids have developed. And they do represent the sea. And if you think about, like you were saying back in the time of Greek myths, what the sea represented to humans, it represented danger, uh, but also a sense of allure and a sense of unpredictability. And men were trying to find ways or say they were trying to find ways to control the sea and they take good luck charms and they try and predict the weather and they do all this kind of thing but at the end of the day if the sea got you that was kind of, that was kind of it even if you were the best swimmer in the world you know the sea could kill you mm. and i was thinking about our previous episode where we discussed How some monsters represent male fears. And I kind of feel like they've dreamt up these sirens and these mermaids as a way of representing the sea and how it's both dangerous and yet alluring and completely unpredictable. And I thought it was quite interesting that a lot of the mermaid stories also involve how to control mermaids like you steal their comb or you put stuff in your ears so you can't hear their songs. And I just thought that's quite interesting because men would also on land actually try to seek to control those kind of alluring dangerous women as well. So it all kind of feeds back into each other really.
2: Yeah. Well, it was highlighted in um the Odyssey wasn't it with Odysseus who made his men tie him to a mast and filled their their ears with wax so they couldn't hear the siren's song. But it, it was so beautiful, he was begging them to untie him, but they obviously refused because he'd ordered them to refuse. It, is, it comes down to power and control. Didn't didn't early map makers use mermaids to depict dangerous areas? So where there were shipwrecks and storms, I think they used to put like little mermaid symbols on their maps to highlight the no go areas, you know stay away,
1: sort of here be dragons kind of thing
0: <laughs> I like the idea where you were talking about how you know the the sea is very changeable and, and almost deceitful in itself, you know you, it could be hiding any number of things underneath it, and, and how that is a metaphor for mermaids, and I was thinking in particular the the mermaids that we get in Peter Pan because they are. They're kind of like the typical teenage girls in a lot of the kind of mean girl type stories in teenage uh, high school stories where they just poke fun at people. They're really mean and bitchy and they, they want the guy, but and then they, you know, Torment Wendy and all this kind of stuff, but then at the same time they're really beautiful and they're very vain and all they're doing is sitting there looking at themselves and preening and all that kind of thing and and that to me is one of those classic representations of of women as frivolous and really vain and all that kind of thing and I find it interesting that while on the one hand those creatures are presented as beautiful you know they are always really really beautiful they're also really ugly in in terms of their personality um, at least in in representations like that which again I think is that kind of thing about it being deceitful in that that they look beautiful but they're really ugly on the inside
2: yeah and I think I think that's often the case but Sometimes if you look at the history of them, like with Alexander the Great's sister, she was heartbroken. She wanted other people to suffer as she had suffered. So there's kind of an understanding there of of why she did what she did, not that it's an excuse. I mean, obviously it's a myth, so it's not real. But if we think about the metaphor of it, those people that have suffered a tragedy, they sometimes want other people to feel that pain with them. So I kind of have a little bit of, of sympathy for the mermaid. And because they belong to water, you can't ever hold water. It's not something that you can capture. Just like in Feather Tide, you can't capture that mermaid. They've got a slippery heart and they, they will go one day.
1: That was my favourite phrase about your idea of having a heart of water that just pours through your fingers. I thought that was a, a beautiful, beautiful analogy, not just for mermaids, but just for some kind of people anyway who don't want to be tied down.
3: No. That's true. Slightly different meaning, but it reminds me of Keats' epitaph. He said, here lies one whose name was Written Water. Nice. <laughs> yeah, the ages washed it all away.
2: Perfect for a romantic poet. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, water's very romantic. It's very soothing. And that's where the, the place gets its name, the City of Murmurs, because I don't think water's ever completely silent it's always this you can hear it whether it's crashing against the rocks whether it's you know just gently lapping against the shore whispering on the sand whatever it is it's it's like um alive it's moving it's constant which is where the name came from because it's it's always murmuring it's always there you mentioned feeling feeling sorry for some of these mermaids
0: who took out their pain with the sea and, and creating danger in the sea to represent their pain. But I find it interesting that traditionally in you know in terms of what's popular, um, the popular story actually aligns the anger and the pain that comes with the uh, the stormy seas and so on to mermen, in that they are enacting revenge and that is why you get the the stormy choppy seas that are dangerous to to mankind because supposedly they mankind have captured or injured killed another of uh, a merfolk a person, <laughs> um, and it's it's the mer men who are actually the vengeful ones so i just find that it's quite interesting because given that that example of alexandra's sister but a lot of the stories that we do see of mermaids don't tend to fall into that category which again i think is a comment on who is allowed to take vengeance who is allowed to show their pain through
2: violence the the key mer man is like i mentioned poseidon and i suppose that the difference is that the mermaid has. Like you mentioned, the the comb made of pearls, and the, you know, she's sitting maybe on an oyster shell and she's in a golden palace. Um, and she's got a mirror and she's always preening and wanting to be beautiful um, and to keep that allure. And then you've got Poseidon, who's the ruler as a, as, as a man, <laughs> who has all the ultimate control of the sea. And he, instead of those feminine objects, he has his trident and that's that's his symbol of power don't they use the conch shell and they blow it like a trumpet yes yeah which kind of links to the lord of the flies where the boys are on the island and you know there's, there's anarchy but the one rule is whoever has the conch shell has the power to speak and obviously language is power and you can control through language and again it's that symbol of of power but you only really see that with the Poseidon and Triton rather than the the female equivalent who is just sat with her mirror and her comb.
1: <laughs> well, I'm really glad you said that, because it was one of the things I was thinking about when I was planning for this episode. And I I mentioned earlier about you can get control over a mermaid if you steal her mirror or if you steal her hairbrush or something like that. And
2: I didn't know that. So that's interesting.
1: Ah. Certainly for a lot of folktales, I know that there's a lot of folktales where they go down there and steal items. If you're a Selkie, then stealing the seal skin is another way to force you to become a bride and and whatever. And in all the stories I've read, there have always been girls that have been captured. I couldn't think, and maybe my co-host can challenge me here, but I couldn't think of any stories where you had a merman who accidentally left I don't know, he's shaving kit, something equally masculine on a rock that some human comes along and steals and says, oh, you can't go back to the sea until you've married me and given me children or whatever. And what usually happens is the girl marries the human. She has several children for him. They all live happily. One day she finds a comb and goes, right, that's say I'm off. And sometimes takes kids with her, sometimes doesn't. But I thought, I can't think of any mermen who did that. And then when you were talking about Triton and his, or Poseidon and his trident. It made me think that when you think about mermen, it's usually they do have something associated with them, but it's usually something of power. And yes, okay, I'm thinking of Disney's The Little Mermaid where Ursula steals the trident. Then she gets control of the ocean, but that's very different to getting control over someone's body and um, encouraging them to be your wife and stay and have children. So I just thought that was a really interesting dynamic that you get with mermaids and not necessarily with mermen.
2: But then you could, I suppose, argue that well, it depends on your perspective that beauty is a form of power. And I think you get privilege with beauty, especially in our society where looks matter, being young matters. So maybe it's just a different kind of power. I don't know.
1: But that's what Beth's saying that, you know, the women do have this power over sailors because they're beautiful. No guy is going to get out of a boat and jump into shark infested waters for somebody who is in his eyes ugly or plain or not very interesting just get ah I'll I'll wait until I get home and see my wife you know it's and I'm not saying that that's anything for beautiful women or against men it just seems to be the way that society tells their tales
2: but then again it's the siren's song isn't it that lures the men it's not what they look like it's not their physical appearance because they hear them before they see them so that's another another angle maybe maybe beauty is just one part of, of the whole and it's the song that's just as tempting as the the hair. Or but, but they have to have long hair, don't they? Because it's practical, because they're half naked. So they have to have that hair to cover their uh, skin. <laughs> I do like this idea
1: that if mermaids exist, they've all got really short hair and they're just going bloody painters who wouldn't like, you know, paint our boobs. <laughs> yeah, little seashells on them. I have to say that those who have seen me at conventions or whatever will know that I have very long hair. And my goal since I was a child was to grow mermaid hair that was long enough to, to cover the top bits. And it was like, I know it's a stupid ambition to have, but I always kind of wanted that. And now I feel I've achieved my goal. Now you
3: have achieved it. I don't have.
1: I know. But I just kind of, in a weird way, it makes me feel prettier just because there are so many representations, as Beth said, of like beautiful women with long flowing hair, because that's just how. We have viewed mermaids throughout the years.
2: Well, I think hair is really important culturally, isn't it? Because some cultures, it, it is a, a real sign of femininity, and they cover it because it's it's so special. And you know, it shouldn't be for everybody to see. It's it's just for the the, the husband or the the male family members. But I mean, in in English society, we we don't have that modesty. If anything, we spend fortune on our hair. If we've got curly hair, we want straight hair. If we've got straight hair, we want curly hair. But long hair has always been associated with femininity, I suppose, and femininity with beauty. Yeah, I mean, I know you
0: said that uh, you haven't seen Disney's The Little Mermaid, but one of the things that always kind of annoyed me was that a lot of the mermaids who end up going to Ursula, the sea witch, for something are... You know the ugly and the socially outcast, the ones that can't find love because they're unattractive, and so she makes them beautiful. And it was always about, it was always about the beauty. And you know, the, the only time I think I've ever really seen mermaid depictions where they were overweight or not, you know, perfectly perfect looking, you know, have perfect skin and hair and all that were. Actually, those mermaids in you know who became Ursula's slaves um, because they couldn't pay up, and it's just it's really harmful. I think that there aren't more you know body diverse and and representations of mermaids. And similarly, I, I mean, I've not seen any of the the kind of later Disney ones, but certainly in that one and and any kind of depictions I've seen of. Peter Pan and mermaids when they're drawn or you know any any time I've seen them they've never been women of color it's really frustrating that they are erased from this kind of beauty fascination that we have with mermaids
2: well wasn't the um the little mermaid statue in Copenhagen was that not graffitied on quite recently to say racist mermaid I don't know why other than it's a white mermaid and like you say has always been depicted as as a white mermaid but I, I don't know I, I don't know whether they ever really found out who was responsible or why they did it I don't know if you'd heard about it oh, I've
3: heard about it yeah um I looked it up and I mean I don't know I I as far as my knowledge goes um Hans Christian Andersen wasn't associated with You know anything? Not nothing like, um, you know, Colston's statue in Bristol, for example. Like he wasn't involved in the slave trade, um, Mm. which I thought that must be what that meant. So yeah, I don't know what that was about, really. I don't know if it was necessarily directed at the author or if it was directed at the mermaid. Directed at the mermaid is rather odd, really, because it's after all only a story.
2: (laughs) Yes, they're all only stories.
1: I'm sure i read, and I'm trying to quickly look it up on the internet, I'm sure I read that in the same way that Disney are doing a load of live action versions of all their old popular films, that they had to cast a person of colour as Ariel. And it says in my, from what I can quickly bring up, that in July 2019, they were saying that it was um, Hal Bailey. It seems to be that they are at least thinking of casting a person of colour as Ariel which is great. And I was talking to my daughter about this when We were sort of talking about Mulan's just coming out this year. And obviously we've had Beauty and the Beast and things. And I think she said something to me about, you know, Emma Watson or whatever. And I was like, well, they are going to have a person of colour as Ariel. And she said, oh, that's brilliant. Because she was really, you know, keen to see it. Um, and I think there's definitely an idea that, like you say, mermaids are associated with beauty. And it's time that we had some, some more diverse people Um, of weights, colour, anything being represented as mermaids, because we have a much different idea of what is beautiful these days than we did back in Hans Christian Andersen's time.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I'd I'd not heard that, but good. So we touched on this idea
3: a little bit earlier. I think when we were talking about leaving, um, so creatures of the sea coming onto land and leaving parts of themselves behind um you know or vice versa which made me think of the idea of selkies uh, which is something we haven't you know creature we haven't quite touched upon yet but again has these are creatures of both worlds um and there's a certain sort of you know when we've also we've been talking about control is a kind of common myth that if a selkie's skin is taken and hidden then they cannot be they male or female return to the world that they were born in like the sea we're really into this idea of interspecies cohabitation um, or even kind of attraction, because very often, you know, it's the, this relationship is between a human and a selkie. Why do you think that we are interested in this idea of mixing human forms with animal forms? And, and how do you think this plays out
2: in conversations of what it means to be human? Well, again, it's it's been around for thousands of years. You know, the idea of the hybrid, usually, certainly in ancient times, it was like the half man, half bull, half lion, half man, half bird, half man. But if you think about the animals that they paired, the animals were really powerful. The bull would beat a man in a fair fight, um, as would a lion. A bird has that, that freedom to, to fly away and evade capture it's only because the human uses their brain their mind that they can get the power over the the animal so i suppose that's hunting isn't it which obviously is well they're not using their mind at all maybe it's 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 to do with the idea of the monster inside us because nobody is purely evil and nobody's purely good there's always shades i think anyway and you know humanity's conflicted nature i think what sets us apart is that we have self awareness some people believe that you know humans have a soul but animals don't which i find quite a sad idea i'd like to think that any living creature has a soul but they say it's the self awareness that sets us apart from from the animal animals are unpredictable impulsive and if you put the mind of a human together with the strength of a bull or a lion, you're creating something quite dangerous. Again, the powerful idea, the vicious nature of of the human. So I, I think it's probably another nod to power. You can't reason with an animal because it doesn't understand it. It doesn't understand language. But when you put the mind of a a human with the the strength of the animal, it's it creates something very. Well, powerful, potentially very destructive. And
3: something potentially without responsibility. You know, as you said, the fact that animals don't have the same level of self-awareness as humans and therefore cannot be held responsible for their actions. And maybe there's something in all of us that would like to think that we would be nice if we weren't also held responsible for our actions. And that might be the animal in all of us.
2: Well, we use that, don't we, to describe humans who are particularly cruel. You know, he's an animal or she's an animal, usually he, to be honest. But you know, like comparison to the beast, uh, the terror inside that, that's lurking there for some more than others. Well, hopefully not for, for many of us, but it, it is there.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's an underlying, like, you know, we call it animal instinct. I think even things like it manifests in like fight or flight. So we still are animals, you know, when it comes down to it, it's just that we put on clothes and walk around and think we're very, very smart. <laughs> I'm really glad we're
1: discussing this because I wanted to put forward the thing I always think about when I think about mermaids and Megan will back me up here. It's the episode of Red Dwarf where they are on a planet that gives them kind of what they want. And the cat asks for a mermaid and a fish headed woman walks out of um, a lake with like a seriously like huge big fish head and then torso and and legs and all this kind of thing. And Lister goes, but I thought mermaids were like had a fishtail and a human head to which the cat goes, no, that's a stupid way around. (laughs) It just put me in mind of what Beth was saying about when we combine humans and animals with mermaids or sirens or selkies or whatever it is always in a powerful and destructive way and it is always in a way in which the human element is uppermost you never really get a mermaid that is the other way round with the lower half of a human and the upper half of a fish even though that would make more sense if you're talking about trying to reproduce and make little mer human babies And I just always thought that was really interesting that when they create, they being any storyteller, creates a human-animal hybrid, it is always something that a human wants to do, like they want to swim or they want to fly or they want to be incredibly strong. But at the heart of it is still wanting to retain your humanity and go, well, I might have these things, I might have these wings, for example, but i don't feel the need to lay eggs or eat caterpillars for example i'm still a human and i can still enjoy everything i would enjoy as a human i just have this extra power so it's kind of combining the two but making sure the human element is still dominant which i always thought was quite pretentious of humans really
2: no i think you're absolutely right yeah, i hadn't even thought of it but yeah it's it's to retain the human mind i suppose because you know that is far more advanced than the animal Kingdom, I suppose. A natural fight without weapons, then you know you're gonna you're gonna have the the animal as the victor. But man doesn't want that. Human doesn't want that because the human wants to be the best. They want to be superior. Uh, they want that power again. We try and control nature, but it's just not gonna happen. <laughs>
0: Talking about what humans want and and taking what they want is very intrinsic to the mermaid narrative, not only in terms of, you know, human men sort of wanting to capture a beautiful mermaid or, you know, take something that isn't the usual, you know, they want something that's mysterious, that's different, that's isn't really theirs to control but they want to be able to control it and you know similarly i think that's definitely played into the kinds of human animal hybrid creatures we we see played out it is all about fantasy and fulfilling those fantasies which is pretty much all mermaids and sirens and selkies it's all about fulfilling
2: male mostly fantasies that's where heartbreak comes from, isn't it? When you try and control somebody, then it's going to end in heartbreak, which I think kind of links to what you're saying. Wanting control isn't going to end happily. You can put a bird in a cage and think you've got the power over the bird, but the bird won't be happy. So how can that be a victory? Well, it can't if you're you know, at all self-reflective.
0: <laughs> but I think most of the uh, the men in these stories are not quite so
2: <laughs> self-aware. Not yet.
0: <laughs> I also wanted to pick up on something you said about souls because I was reading up on sort of different traditions of, of mermaid stories and I came across one that said that mermaids were said not to have souls and could only gain one by marrying a human.
2: Yeah, that's, that's the original story, isn't it? The
0: Yeah, which I just found also not just upsetting, but it, it felt like a way to kind of legitimize this sort of male fantasy around having one of these women because it becomes another way that they can save a woman because they're they're literally saving her soul by giving her a soul. I just found that really, really interesting. Thinking about that then, you know, leads me to think about how common that kind of romance is, the interspecies romance of human and mermaids. And, you know, as you say, it's often ends in heartache and it's, I've always kind of thought of it as, as a metaphor for, you know, sticking to our own, you you know, you can't really have a romance with someone other than who you are, whether it's a species or someone of a different class or whatever it is. But it seems to me like, stories that have a kind of message or moral like that don't really fit with where we are, uh, you know, in the current social and political climate.
2: I think, you know, difference is is not necessarily a, a reason not to be with somebody. Um, and like you said, I mean, that difference can be class, ethnicity, colour, age, religion, culture, whatever it is. But love is love. And I think that it's it's about how well you can adapt um how well you can accept how well you can embrace otherness and it, it can make you a better person it can teach you tolerance understanding sometimes it might be difficult but i don't i don't think difference or otherness should be a barrier and equally people that come from the same background whatever that might be it doesn't necessarily work it can fail just as as easily as two people coming together from very different places
3: i have to say i hadn't heard that about mermaids before and um the soul thing that is so insidious isn't it you know it's it's like it's not just that they have to own their bodies they have to own their souls their very identities there they have to own their their afterlives i mean that is talk about a grab for power over another living thing i mean that is really dark isn't it
2: maybe that's why they're so cruel because if they're soulless, how can you love? How can you know compassion and how can you feel for anybody else if you can't feel for yourself? And I think in the original, isn't it, that she doesn't win his heart, so she throws herself back into the sea? But is it the daughters of air that she meets, the daughters of the air, and they tell her that she can earn her soul in a different way? And it's through doing good deeds. So I think like bringing cool breezes to the hot land and, you know, fragrance in the air in the, the evening. I suppose it, it moves away from the the man giving her the soul, but it does say that, you know, mermaids don't aren't born with a soul. And I guess that's that's what they're they're ultimately searching for, be it through winning the heart of a man or through good deeds.
1: I remember like you said about the idea that she's I think it's something about turning into sea foam but you're right she's given the chance to redeem herself but ironically like you said by kind of being a servant to humans and helping humans out in a nice way you kind of feel that she hasn't really won she's just tied up in humanity in a different way but that could just be me being very cynical
2: well no wonder they want to drown all the sails
1: <laughs> oh I love it again there's another great story in there I'm sure
3: It's very similar to the Fae, isn't it? Because the same thing, it's like, you know, and especially if you read enough of Yeats's poetry, you kind of see that the Fae are very much like, or the Shi, you know, they're depicted as soulless beings who kind of have this weird obsession with humanity and and yet man has a soul and they do not. And it seems like this idea of the otherness that are the, the creatures that exist on the periphery between human and animal and familiar and unfamiliar. They all seem to have this kind of idea of, of like impermanence and intransience. Like when they have left this world, they will leave no footprint behind them.
2: That's kind of the magic. That's the fascination of them. The idea that, yeah, of course mermaids don't exist, but maybe they do because I guess choosing the air and the sea, its they're both so infinite and humans have that that need to want to discover, to find out what's there and I just don't think we ever will, not, not truly, because they're just so vast. Both spaces are so open and far-reaching and it's that endlessness. So we'll never really know, we'll never really be able to prove one way or the other. So you took that in a much more positive way.
0: With what Lizzie was saying, it just got me thinking that humans not only do we think ourselves better, you know, that we have this this conscious mind, our ability to know ourselves and and all of that, we then also want the power to bestow that gift, that privilege on other people. So the idea that say the mermaids, could get a soul if we a human deems them worthy and decides to give them one. Mm. It comes back to that idea of control and power. It's just another way of sticking our flag in the dirt and saying, well, I'm the best and if you want to be even like slightly on my level, you're going to have to work for it and only I, as a superior human, can uh, bestow that upon you.
2: I don't know if it's just more recent or whether it's always been the case, but we kind of want more all the time. We want bigger, we want better. We want to update this and change that. And what've they got, well I want the next one. And I like this this endlessness, this disposable society that doesn't have a limit. Very materialistic kind of world, isn't it? And I guess power is wrapped up in that, as is the the image of beauty. And it's soulless in a way. If we're talking about souls. But that is where we live now. Everyone's competing. Everyone's in a rush. Nothing's ever slow. There is no, It's fast-paced. People want quick turnaround.
0: I really like the idea of how you were saying that we, we've now become soulless, how we went from humans having the power to be, basically bestow a soul upon a creature who didn't have one to humans having basically willingly given theirs away. Mm-hmm. It's complacency,
3: isn't it? And it's a need to control our environment as well, particularly this idea of segmenting time as if it's a finite resource. Well, I suppose in some ways, yes, it is. But, uh, you know, like time is a human concept. You know, hours, seconds, and minutes only exist because we've given them names and we've compartmentalized our lives. So I feel like. This whole theme of tonight's
2: conversation is it comes back to power and control. Well, that's that's the one thing you can't control, time. Well, time and tide link back to the sea. You can't control those things because it, it it's nature. And I mean, look at what's happened to our planet. Nature's taking it back. It's, it's decided it's going to give itself a break because <laughs> we're not. So we've all been kept inside while it it heals itself and I'm sure we'll get back out and carry on because I don't think we will learn which is a shame but again it's it's so ingrained this idea of you know wanting things rushing efficiency which I'm all for I really like efficiency but there's a way of doing it
3: um to quote my mother more haste less speed
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) I've heard that one (laughs) true though isn't it in a way it is true
3: it
0: is (laughs) thank you so much for joining us it's been a really fascinating conversation about mermaids
2: thank you for having me it's been good
0: breaking the glass slipper is written and produced by megan lee charlotte bond and lucy Hounsom. please help us spread the word subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform we want to hear from you Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.